Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 2 of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daryl Neely. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 2 Outside it had grown dark. From the deep trench of shadow between the houses, lit up vaguely by the glimmer of street lamps, ascended the evening silence of Sulaco, the silence of a town with few carriages, of unshod horses, and a softly sandaled population. The windows of the Casa Gul flung their shining parallelograms upon the house of the Avellanos. Now and then a shuffle of feet passed below, with the pulsating red glow of a cigarette at the foot of the walls, and the night air, as if cooled by the snows of Iguerota, refreshed their faces. The Occidentals! said Martin Bécoud, using the usual term the provincials of Sulaco applied to themselves, have been always distinct and separated. As long as we hold Kaita, nothing can reach us. In all our troubles, no army has marched over those mountains. A revolution in the central provinces isolates us at once. Look how complete it is now. The news of Barrios' movement will be cabled to the United States, and only in that way will it reach Santa Marta by the cable from the other seaboard. We have the greatest riches, the greatest fertility, the purest blood in our great families, the most laborious population. The Occidental province should stand alone. The early federalism was not bad for us. Then came this union, which Don Enrique Gould resisted. It opened the road to tyranny, and ever since, the rest of Costa Guana hangs like a millstone round our necks. The Occidental territory is large enough to make any man's country. Look at the mountains. Nature itself seems to cry to us, Separate! She made an energetic gesture of negation. A silence fell. Oh yes, I know it's contrary to the doctrine laid down in the history of fifty years' misrule. I am only trying to be sensible, but my sense seems always to give you cause for offense. Have I startled you very much with this perfectly reasonable aspiration? She shook her head. No, she was not startled, but the idea shocked her early convictions. Her patriotism was larger. She had never considered that possibility. It may yet be the means of saving some of your convictions, he said, prophetically. She did not answer. She seemed tired. 
They leaned side by side on the rail of the little balcony, very friendly, having exhausted politics, giving themselves up to the silent feeling of their nearness, in one of those profound pauses that fall upon the rhythm of passion. Towards the plaza end of the street, the glowing coals in the braseros of the market women cooking their evening meal gleamed red along the edge of the pavement. A man appeared without a sound in the light of a street lamp, showing the colored inverted triangle of his bordered poncho, square on his shoulders, hanging to a point below his knees. From the harbor end of the Calleja, a horseman walked his soft-stepping mount, gleaming silver-gray abreast each lamp under the dark shape of the rider. Behold the illustrious Capitals de Cargadores, said Decoud gently, coming in all his splendor after his work is done. The next great man of Sulaco after Don Carlos Gould. But he is good-natured, and let me make friends with him. Ah, indeed, said Antonio. How did you make friends? A journalist ought to have his finger on the popular pulse, and this man is one of the leaders of the populace. A journalist ought to know remarkable men, and this man is remarkable in his way. Ah, yes, said Antonio thoughtfully. It is known that this Italian has a great influence. The horsemen had passed below them with a gleam of dim light on the shining broad quarters of the gray mare, on a bright heavy stirrup, on a long silver spur. But the short flick of yellowish flame in the dusk was powerless against the muffled-up mysteriousness of the dark figure with an invisible face concealed by a great sombrero. Decoud and Antonia remained leaning over the balcony, side by side, touching elbows, with their heads overhanging the darkness of the street, and the brilliantly lighted sala at their backs. This was a tete-a-tete of extreme impropriety, something in which, in the whole extent of the Republic, only the extraordinary Antonia could be capable. Poor motherless girl, never accompanied, with a careless father who had thought only of making her learned. Even Decoud himself seemed to feel that this was as much as he could expect of having her to himself till, till the revolution was over and he could carry her off to Europe, away from the endlessness of civil strife whose folly seemed even harder to bear than its ignominy. After one Montero, there would be another. The lawlessness of a populace of all colors and races, barbarism, irremediable tyranny. As the great liberator Bolivar had said in the bitterness of his spirit, America is ungovernable. Those who worked for her independence have plowed the sea. 
He did not care, he declared boldly. He seized every opportunity to tell her that though she had managed to make a Blanco journalist of him, he was no patriot. First of all, the word had no sense for cultured minds, to whom the narrowness of every belief is odious. And secondly, in connection with the everlasting troubles of this unhappy country, it was hopelessly besmirched. It had been the cry of dark barbarism, the cloak of lawlessness, of crimes, of rapacity, of simple thieving. He was surprised at the warmth of his own utterance. He had no need to drop his voice. It had been low all the time, a mere murmur in the silence of dark houses with their shutters closed early against the night air, as in the custom of Sulaco. Only the sala of Casa Gould flung out defiantly the blaze of its four windows, the bright appeal of light in the whole dumb obscurity of the street, and the murmur on the little balcony went on after a short pause. But we are laboring to change all that, Antonia protested. It is exactly what we desire. It is our object. It is the great cause. And the word you despise has stood also for sacrifice, for courage, for constancy, for suffering. Papa, who, plowing the sea, interrupted Decoud, looking down. There was below the sound of hasty and ponderous footsteps. Your uncle, the grand vicar of the cathedral, has just turned under the gate, observed Decoud. He said mass for the troops in the plaza this morning. They had built for him an altar of drums, you know and they brought outside all the painted blocks to take the air. All the wooden saints stood militarily in a row at the top of the great flight of steps. They looked like a gorgeous escort attending the vicar general. I saw the great function from the windows of the poor veneer. He is amazing, your uncle, the last of the Corbeillans. He glittered exceedingly in his vestments with a great crimson velvet cross down his back. And all the time, our savior, Barrios, sat in the Amaria Club, drinking punch at an open window. Esprit fort, our Barrios. I expect at every moment your uncle to launch excommunication there, and then at the black eye-patch in the window across the plaza. But not at all. Ultimately, the troops marched off. Later, Barrios came down with some of the officers and stood with his uniform all unbuttoned, discoursing at the edge of the pavement. Suddenly, your uncle appeared, no longer glittering, but all black, at the cathedral door with that threatening aspect he has. You know, like a sort of avenging spirit. He gives one look, strides over straight at the group of uniforms, and leads away the general by the elbow. He walked them for a quarter of an hour in the shade of a wall, never let go his elbow for a moment, 
talking all the time with exultation and gesticulating with a long black arm. It was a curious scene. The officers seemed struck with astonishment. Remarkable man, your missionary uncle. He hates an infidel much less than a heretic, and prefers a heathen many times to an infidel. He condescends graciously to call me a heathen, sometimes, you know. Antonia listened with her hands over the balustrade, opening and shutting the fan gently. And Decoud talked a little nervously, as if afraid that she would leave him at the first pause. Their comparative isolation and precious sense of intimacy, the slight contact of their arms, affected him softly, for now and then a tender inflection crept into the flow of his ironic murmurs. Any slight sign of favor from a relative of yours is welcome, Antonia, and perhaps he understands me after all. But I know him, too, our Padre Corbeon. The idea of political honor, justice, and honesty for him consists in the restitution of the confiscated church property. Nothing else could have drawn that fierce converter of savage Indians out of the wilds to work for the Ruggierist cause. Nothing else but that wild hope. He would make a pronunciamento himself for such an object against any government if he could only get followers. What does Don Carlos Gold think of that? But, of course, with his English impenetrability, nobody can tell what he thinks. Probably he thinks of nothing apart from his mind, of his imperium in imperio. As to Mrs. Gold, she thinks of her schools, of her hospitals, of the mothers with the young babies, of every sick old man in the three villages. If you were to turn your head now, you would see her extracting a report from that sinister doctor in a check shirt. What's his name? Onigyam. Or else catechizing Don Pepe, or perhaps listening to Padre Roman. They are all down here today, all her ministers of state. Well, she is a sensible woman, and perhaps Don Carlos is a sensible man. It's a part of solid English sense not to think too much, to see only what may be of practical use at the moment. These people are not like ourselves. We have no political reason. We have political passions, sometimes. What is a conviction? A particular view of our personal advantage, either practical or emotional. No one is a patriot for nothing. The word serves us well. But I am clear-sighted, and I shall not use that word to you, Antonio. I have no patriotic illusions. I have only the supreme illusion of a lover. He paused, then muttered almost inaudibly, that can lead one very far, though. Behind their backs, the political tide that once in every 24 hours set with a strong flood through the Gould drawing room could be heard, rising higher in a hum of voices. 
Men had been dropping in singly, or in twos and threes. The higher officials of the province, engineers of the railway, sunburnt and in tweeds, with the frosted head of their chief smiling with slow humorous indulgence amongst the young eager faces. Scarfe, the lover of Fandangos, had already slipped out in search of some dance, no matter where, on the outskirts of the town. Yon Yuste Lopez, after taking his daughters home, had entered solemnly in a black creased coat buttoned up under his spreading brown beard. The few members of the provincial assembly present clustered at once around their president to discuss the news of the war and the last proclamation of the rebel Montero, the miserable Montero, calling in the name of a justly incensed democracy upon all the provincial assemblies of the republic to suspend their sittings till his sword had made peace and the will of the people could be consulted. It was practically an invitation to dissolve, an unheard-of audacity of that evil madman. The indignation ran high in the knot of deputies behind Jose Avellanos. Don Jose, lifting up his voice, cried out to them over the high back of his chair, Sulaco has answered, by sending today an army upon his flank. If all the other provinces show only half as much patriotism as we Occidentals. A great outburst of acclamations covered the vibrating treble of the light and soul of the party. Yes, yes, this was true, a great truth. Sulaco was in the forefront, as ever, it was a boastful tumult, the hopefulness inspired by the event of the day breaking out amongst these caballeros of the campo, thinking of their herds, of their lands, of the safety of their families. Everything was at stake. No, it was impossible that Montero should succeed. This criminal, the shameless Indio, the clamor continued for some time. Everybody else in the room looked towards the group where Don Duste had put on his air of impartial solemnity as if presiding at a sitting of the provincial assembly. Decoud had turned round at the noise and, leaning his back on the balustrade, shouted into the room with all the strength of his lungs, Grand Bastia! His unexpected cry had the effect of stilling the noise. All the eyes were directed to the window with an approving expectation. But Decoud had already turned his back upon the room and was again leaning out over the quiet street. This is the quintessence of my journalism. That is the supreme argument, he said to Antonio. I have invented this definition this last word on a great question. But I am no patriot. I am no more of a patriot than the capitas of the Sulaco Cargadores. This Genoese who had done such great things for this harbor, this active usher-in of the material implements for our progress. 
You have heard Captain Mitchell confess over and over again that till he got this man, he could never tell how long it would take to unload a ship. That is bad for progress. You have seen him pass by after his labors on his famous horse to dazzle the girls in some ballroom with an earthen floor. He is a fortunate fellow. His work is an exercise of personal powers. His leisure is spent in receiving the marks of extraordinary adulation. And he likes it, too. Can anybody be more fortunate? To be feared and admired is... And are these your highest aspirations, Don Martin? Interrupted Antonio. I was speaking of a man of that sort, said Decoud curtly. The heroes of the world have been feared and admired. What more could he want? Decoud had often felt his familiar habit of ironic thought fall shattered against Antonia's gravity. She irritated him as if she too had suffered from that inexplicable feminine obtuseness which stands so often between a man and a woman of the more ordinary sort. But he overcame his vexation at once. He was very far from thinking Antonia ordinary, whatever verdict his skepticism might have pronounced upon himself. With a touch of penetrating tenderness in his voice, he assured her that his only aspiration was to a felicity so high that it seemed almost unrealizable on this earth. She colored invisibly with a warmth against which the breeze from the Sierra seemed to have lost its cooling power in the sudden melting of the snows. His whisper could not have carried so far, though there was enough ardor in his tone to melt a heart of ice. Antonia turned away abruptly, as if to carry his whispered assurance into the room behind, full of light, noisy with voices. The tide of political speculation was beating high within the four walls of the great sala, as if driven beyond the marks by a great gust of hope. Doña Stay's fan-shaped beard was still the center of loud and animated discussions. There was a self-confident ring in all the voices. Even the few Europeans around Charles Gould, a Dane, a couple of Frenchmen, a discreet fat German, smiling with downcast eyes, the representatives of those material interests that had got a footing in Sulaco under the protecting might of the San Tome mine, had infused a lot of good humor into their deference. Charles Gould, to whom they were paying their court, was the visible sign of the stability that could be achieved on the shifting ground of revolutions. They felt hopeful about their various undertakings. One of the two Frenchmen, small, black, with glittering eyes lost in an immense growth of bushy beard, waved his tiny brown hands and delicate wrists. He had been traveling in the interior of the province for a syndicate of European capitalists. His forcible monsieur l'administrateur, returning every minute, shrilled against the steady hum of conversations. 
He was relating his discoveries. He was ecstatic. Charles Gould glanced down at him courteously. At a given moment of these necessary receptions, it was Mrs. Gould's habit to withdraw quietly into a little drawing room, especially her own, next to the great sala. She had risen and, waiting for Antonia, listened with a slightly worried graciousness to the engineer-in-chief of the railway, who stooped over her, relating slowly, without the slightest gesture, something apparently amusing, for his eyes had a humorous twinkle. Antonia, before she advanced into the room to join Mrs. Gould, turned her head over her shoulder towards Decoud, only for a moment. Why should any one of us think his aspirations unrealizable? she said rapidly. I am going to cling to mine to the end, Antonia, he answered through clenched teeth, then bowed very low, a little distantly. The engineer-in-chief had not finished telling his amusing story. The humors of railway building in South America appealed to his keen appreciation of the absurd, and he told his instances of ignorant prejudice and as ignorant cunning very well. Now Mrs. Gould gave him all her attention as he walked by her side escorting the ladies out of the room. Finally, all three passed unnoticed through the glass doors in the gallery. Only a tall priest, stalking silently in the noise of the sala, checked himself to look after them. Father Corbeon, whom Decoud had seen from the balcony turning into the gateway of the Casa Gould, had addressed no one since coming in. The long, skimpy soutane accentuated the tallness of his stature. He carried his powerful torso thrown forward, and the straight black bar of his joined eyebrows, the pugnacious outline of the bony face, the white spot of a scar on the bluish-shaven cheeks, a testimonial to his apostolic zeal from a party of unconverted Indians, suggested something unlawful behind his priesthood, the idea of a chaplain of bandits. He separated his bony, knotted hands clasped behind his back to shake his finger at Martin. Decoud had stepped into the room after Antonia, but he did not go far. He had remained just within, against the curtain, with an expression of not quite genuine gravity, like a grown-up person taking part in a game of children. He gazed quietly at the threatening finger. I have watched your reverence converting General Barrios by a special sermon on the plaza, he said, without making the slightest movement. What miserable nonsense! Father Corbeillon's deep voice resounded all over the room, making all the heads turn on the shoulders. The man is a drunkard. Senores, the god of your general is a bottle. His contemptuous, arbitrary voice caused an uneasy suspension of every sound, as if the self-confidence of the gathering had been staggered by a blow. 
but nobody took up Father Corbeillon's declaration. End of Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 2 Recorded by Daryl Neely, Delphi, Maryland